Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Hi, Steve. Uh, hi, Matt. How are you doing? I am doing well. We are recording this right before the holidays. It will probably release after Christmas. We have gotten all of our shopping done, all of our stuff sent off. I sent a gift to you that may not make it there in time. We'll see. But either way, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and a Happy Holidays to all of our fine listeners at home. Yes. Since Cookie Day, which is our annual holiday party that we have, it's been uh, much easier since then. Good. First thing I want to bring up here is, Matt, you have been lying to me and to our listeners for a long time now. Yes, I about all kinds of things. You finally figured out one of them, I guess. <laughs> no, you told me when we were in Orlando that you actually don't like our theme music. What? I said I loved our theme music? I never said I loved our theme music. I think you did when we hadn't yet picked what we were doing. And I just said, oh, yeah, do you like our new theme music? I, I think you said that. Then. <laughs> now, I don't love our theme music. You know, my other podcast, we paid a composer who's a friend of mine 200 bucks for a theme, and I like it a lot better. And I'm like, I, I'd rather have spent $200 on a better theme than $50 on a theme I don't like as much. Okay, so Matt and I are going to try to be a little bit more disciplined about getting through these issues this time. We're going to try to hold ourselves to time limits. Yes, 10 minutes for a full book, five minutes for a half book for the pot recap. And then we can talk all we want about the issue after we are done with the pot recap. In the past, Steve has said, well, I try to limit myself. And then you jump in and kibitz halfway through. And I'm like, this rule, there's still kibitzing allowed. I'm still allowed to jump in and interrupt all I want and still <laughs> try to get five or 10 minutes in. Okay, so I think we said that you were going to start this episode with Spider-Man. Yes? Yes, let's do it. I'm going to hit start on a 10-minute timer. An adventure epic of most compelling excellence, Spidey Strikes Back, I think this exact piece of art was used on the cartoon. We see Spider-Man swinging oh, right. directly towards us. The Human Torch is there. The Human Torch is going to be a very regular character in this book. This is the third issue in a row with Human Torch in it. And we have the Sandman back for a rematch. And this time he has brought the Enforcers. And I always love the Enforcers. I love them more than you do, I think. But yes. Montana, Fancy Dan, and Ox. As you recall, at the end of last issue, Spider-Man had been moping it on the run for two issues and then decided he was going to come back out swinging. And sure enough, we see some crooks who are robbing a place. They've got bags, but they, there are no dollar signs on the bags. I guess that's a Kirby thing. Kirby puts dollar signs on the bags. Dicko does not. But Spider-Man is jumping all around, beating the crap out of him, really enjoying himself. As you recall, last issue, J. Jonah Jameson was smiling in a, in a very fiendish way throughout the whole issue and was just ecstatic with this smile permanently good to his face after the whole town had turned against Spider-Man. Well, now we get three excellent panels where he is about to give a speech about how, how I proved that Spider-Man is a cowardly fraud. And then he's told that Spider-Man has been cleaning up and arresting bad guys and back to his old self. And we get three panels of JJJ's face beaming and then falling and then crestfallen. The feel of sort of gravity reasserting itself <laughs> on his face is just uh, unparalleled. <laughs> it, it would be tough to get anything like that. Oh, and that uh, that fight scene that immediately precedes this really does have just some fun, fun shots by Ditko. Uh, the one where uh, Spider-Man is running along the side of a wall, punching three goons in a row. Yeah. <laughs> some really fantastic stuff. 
we, I don't know why we need human torch in this issue. I don't know why we need human torch every issue. He is certainly not doing himself any good. He is flying around and then gets captured by the enforcers. Presumably, Fancy Dan has, yes, it says he has an asbestos-covered lasso, just in case he had to lasso the human torch. The enforcers and Sandman grab the torch. They put him in a little glass tube. We then cut to Spider-Man. He's flying home. He's all happy. He's with Aunt May. He's back at school. Bizarrely, so this is the sort of thing where it seemed so coincidental, and usually Dicko doesn't rely on coincidence as much. I thought it must be a trick or a trap for Peter, but apparently it's not, that Spider-Man is just walking home. Now I always get the feeling he goes to his neighborhood school, so he doesn't have to walk very far from his Forest Hills home to his Forest Hills high school. He passes by Fancy Dan while walking home. Well, I guess he may be walking to the Bugle. It just says, but then after school has ended, it would make more sense if he's walking to work at the Bugle or something. But then... Passes Fancy Dan and recognizes him as Fancy Dan and says, uh, that's not good. So changes into Spider-Man, follows him, goes into the headquarters and suddenly, you know, it's not a trap because Fancy Dan is surprised to see him there. All the enforcers are like, hey, Spider-Man just showed up. Awesome. Let's beat him up. And they get in a big fight. Now, it's become increasingly annoying to me in comics when they have to stop fighting five pages into an issue so that they can resume fighting 15 pages into an issue. But in this case, it kind of makes sense. The cops come in. And yeah. everybody scatters when the cops come in. I mean, I, I can see the story structure argument for doing that. And it's just a matter of can you come up with a decent reason why it happens? Yes. But also, I will point out that page eight there in that fight scene where Ox throws Fancy Dan at Spider-Man. I would describe that as a family dollar fastball special. Yes. Uh, Later in the X-Men comics, Colossus would throw Wolverine and they would call it a fastball special. But yes, here we have Ox throwing Fancy Dan. Yes, for a uh, cheaper version of the same thing. Peter is at the Daily Bugle and he's in such good mood that he doesn't mind that his girl is clearly falling in love with another man. Last issue, we saw Ned Leeds. He was not named. Now we find out his name. This is Ned Leeds. Betty is sort of hoping Peter will be jealous. It's like, uh, here's my new guy who I'm going on dates with. And Peter's like, that's fine. No problem. And she's I'm like, happy for you. <laughs> she's yeah, you're like, a good girl. You're supposed to be dating around. This is no problem. And then she has the nerve to think, I wonder, could he have found someone else? Like, oh, heaven forbid he finds someone else as you're introducing the new man you're dating to him. But of course, it was considered somewhat OK. It was considered even appropriate or better for women to have multiple boys they were dating than just one boy they were dating. But that is changing soon. Meanwhile, JJJ is now in a terrible mood, has no interest in talking to Peter. Peter, meanwhile, has figured out he was fighting the enforcers and then the police scattered them. He's like, oh, I got to mop up the enforcers. Sees somebody who he knows he can sweat for information, webs him up to a building, demands to know where the enforcers are, finds out. Guy manages to squiggle out of his coat and climb down and warn Sandman and the enforcers that Spider-Man is coming. Spider-Man does not realize this. (laughs) This keeps happening to poor Spider-Man. He keeps going like, oh, there's nobody here. I can rescue Johnny. And there's just that pile of sand. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Oh, Spider-Man. Believe it or not, the pile of sand comes alive. It's Sandman. He attacks. Spider-Man is just fighting the enforcers and additional goons and the Sandman for several pages, not occurring to him that if he freed Human Torch, Human Torch might help. So then finally, after about five pages of this fight, he frees Human Torch. And now the two of them are doing their best. I guess do the enforcers just get away here. Well, at the last we see them, Fancy Dan and Montana are surrounded by fire and Ox, I guess, maybe has been knocked out. So I guess, no, I guess they didn't get away. Johnny had just trapped them all in rings of fire 
And then when the cops show up, presumably they got the enforcers too. Yeah. So basically they fell into a ring of fire. They went down, down, down and the flames grew higher. Yes. Uh, but Sandman is the last one. He's getting away. And Human Torch and Spider-Man sort of trip over each other and get tangled up in webbing. Human Torch has to explain, stay back, useless. Even if it is asbestos treated, all melted off with a dose of concentrated white hot flame. So everybody at this point, there's just a general assumption in New York City that you will end up fighting the Human Torch and you would better treat anything and everything you own with asbestos at all times, even well, Spider-Man. Also, also, you know, my, my feeling about this particular re- revelation is that JJJ was right. Yes. Spider-Man is a menace. I mean, this stuff evaporates within an hour, right? He's leaving this stuff all over the city and just making airborne asbestos everywhere. Yes, JJJ was right. Yes, call him mesothelioma, man. So then... <laughs> Not that mesothelioma is funny. <laughs> no. Just to, be, just to be clear. Johnny manages to melt, melt them out anyway and... Believe it or not, the cops managed to arrest the Sandman. Like, they're just they're just wrestling him to the ground, even though he's changing to sand. And I guess he is just so worn out from the fight that he can't resist them well enough. Yeah, I think, yeah, because he's thinking to himself, it's no use, I'm too tired, can't make the effort, too much of a strain, might as well surrender. Uh, so Pete goes, sells some photos of the fight to JJJ, who is finally starting to feel a little better. Pete then meets Ned Leeds again, and once again says... Just fine, Ned. Things couldn't be better. Have a nice time tonight, you two. And she thinks, I would secretly hoped he'd be a little jealous, but he doesn't seem to care. Have I really lost him? I don't know if I really buy this, that, uh, you know, his first love is now dating someone else and he doesn't care. I guess he had sort of moved on in his head from Betty to a certain extent. I guess, you know, he never really fell head over heels for Betty. He, it was never really, you know, teen puppy love for Pete and he is just feeling too good about life right now to really get upset about any girl, I guess. And, you know, he just is uh, ready to let her go. But uh, I mean, he, he would certainly be morose when she was, you know, not giving him the time of day. But they're teenagers. Uh, also, Liz Allen now seems to really actually be genuinely interested in him these days. And yeah, you know, it's like, oh, all right, you know, whatever. Just doesn't, <laughs> doesn't need Betty anymore, I guess. But, you know, things aren't entirely over with them. We'll see more. So then right. Pete, Pete is walking home and is being tailed by a mysterious man in a purple suit who then calls someone else a mysterious man in a green robe and, and tells him that he's been following Parker. And then the man in the green robe says, I've got to know for certain. And then when I'm sure I'll act. And then there's a huge question mark filling the panel and says, what is this? It seems that a new and different menace is about to enter the life of Peter Parker. So then that's the end of the issue. I didn't need all 10 seconds or I didn't need all 10 minutes. OK, that was exactly 10 minutes. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, you hit it on the nose. I'm trying to remember, is this the mastermind they show at the end? Is this Green Goblin? I don't think it is, right? No, it's... I went ahead and flipped to the next issue. It's J. Jonah Jameson. Ah. J. Jonah Jameson is the mastermind. And indeed, J. Jonah Jameson in the next issue will turn out to be the most villainous J. Jonah Jameson will ever be. I oh, guess... is, the ne- is the next issue Scorpion? The next issue is Scorpion. So well, I don't know uh, if that's the most evil because he also finances the Spider Slayer, which, yeah. you know, is also <laughs> pretty bad. Just right there, just in the name. That's pretty right. bad. So you're right. Those are those are some more stories. But I think this is a good issue of Spider-Man. I think that Dicko is trying the hell out of it. Dicko is having a wonderful time. It's starting to show a little bit that we're no longer getting these wonderful new characters 
every issue like we got for the first 15 issues. You know, they're just mixing and matching at this point. They're going, let's go ahead and combine the Sandman and the Enforcers. But I like the Sandman. I like the Enforcers. I even like Johnny, even though I'm getting a little tired of him. It's a tremendous amount of fun. Uh, Dicko is enjoying showing various people punching each other. And that's why I read comic books. I want to see people punching each other. And that's what I'm getting. Yes. I mean, this is some prime Ditko superhero action in this issue. I especially like on page 16, panel four, the Sandman turning himself into basically a bowling ball and knocking uh, Spider-Man over, you know, just hitting him in the back of the knee. And then uh, the next panel, Spider-Man. And this is a really, really well-drawn panel. Uh, Spider-Man doing cartwheels, avoiding the thugs that are there in the room. I want to show this to my teenage self who thought that Ditko sucked and just show me this panel. (laughs) Just be like, look, look at this. (laughs) Okay, this is a good issue. I think we are ready to move on. Should we do? We're doing Daredevil next, right? Daredevil, let's do it. So I'm going to start the timer now. So this is Daredevil. Uh, He is going to fight the mysterious masked matador. And on the cover, they boast that they are going to have Wally Wood drawing this issue. Uh, For anyone out there who doesn't know, Wally Wood was one of the great EC Comics artists for their, um, well, I know I I read mainly their science fiction and war stuff. I don't know whether he did any of the uh, horror or crime stuff as well. But he is really just one of the best, most famous comics artists around. And then stayed at EC when EC basically just became Mad Magazine. And Wally Wood did a lot of the great early Mad Magazine stories, too. Uh, So I have nothing but massive respect for Wally Wood. I'm making that clear now because I also (laughs) want to say I do not like his superhero output. I just don't think he was well suited to superhero work. And it's which is just so disappointing. So, you know, this book has had such a poor track record um, or uneven track record, at least. Uh, with its art, that it's like, oh, they got Wally Wood. This is going to be awesome. And then it's like, eh. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say I don't like any of his superhero stuff. I would say my favorite superhero stuff of his, I do like the Tower comic stuff he did after this with Dynamo and No Man and things like that. I think that... Which I have not read. I think that he is being defeated to a certain extent by the lameness of Daredevil. You know, it's interesting. Right away, he's like, okay, Daredevil looks so lame. I'm just going to start off making a small change. And he adds another D to the chest. And it says right here, it says, has redesigned certain portions of DD's costume. Well, in a couple issues, Wally Wood's just going to get fed up with this costume entirely and finally go, we just need to completely redesign Daredevil's costume and give him a much better costume, the costume he will have from then on starting in two issues. But for now, he's just making little changes. I think that this is a well-drawn issue. I think that this is, it's not... I agree it's not as good as I had hoped. Wally Wood, when he's doing historical comics, is an absolute treasure. Uh, Historical or science fiction comics, really, either. And he is not blossoming as much here as he could. So I'm going to totally blow your 10 minutes out of the water. Oh, yeah, you're you're totally doing that right now. I want to talk about something on this first page that could take 10 minutes all by itself. So on the first page, (laughs) (laughs) we have Daredevil swinging around on a rope. He is swinging from building to building, holding what is clearly a big, thick, corded rope. And it's like, where did that rope come from? Now, in later Daredevil issues, I've always felt that one of the huge flaws of Daredevil is I never believed there was really a way for him to get around town. Now, later, they would make it clear that he was shooting 
the hooked part of his blind man's cane with a little cord, thin cord that would come out of it and wrap around things and allow him to swing around town like Spider-Man, which I always thought was just tremendously dumb. And I did not buy it, did not believe it. And yet that's the status quo from this point on in Daredevil. That's what's going on in all the Miller issues. That's how he's getting around town. And so like when they did the Daredevil movie, I'm like, how are they going to do this in the movie? Are they actually going to show him doing that? And they didn't. And they sort of fudged it in the movie. And then I'm like, well, what about the TV show? How are they going to show him getting around the TV show? And there was a moment, I think it was at the end of episode one or episode two of the TV show, where it shows Daredevil, like he's now officially Daredevil, although he's wearing his black outfit and he's standing on top of a roof at night. And then he hears on the far edge of town, a siren go off and he lifts up and then he ducks out of frame. And I'm like, and he does what? And he does what? <laughs> he, he gets a cab. He gets on his Daredevil cycle. He, he certainly doesn't seem to have any way to swing from building to building on the, on the Netflix show. And I'm like, you're just you're just going to completely just weasel out of this, aren't you? You're just not going to show how he gets across town. We just have there is absolutely no way in this Netflix show for him to get across town that you have established in any way, shape or form. He is Ubering it. He is getting in an Uber and going from place to place. Basically, Matt, you don't deserve to know. That's what it comes down to. <laughs> Batman does largely the same thing, you know, with his little batarangs with the filaments on them. It's never really made sense there, but. You know, I don't really find this making any less sense myself. No, this makes less sense. Like a battering, I can more easily believe a battering could hook around something or, you know, it's, they eventually change it on the cartoon and then they start doing this in the comics as well. So like he's got a little explosive grappling hook type thing that, you know, shoots out and then, then you know, lodges into stone and attaches to it and allows him to swing himself around. And of course, Batman also has a car. When, you know, so he doesn't need to get around that way. He's got every conceivable vehicle. Daredevil has no okay, vehicle. Matt, you, we are already five and a half minutes into my time here. I am going to cut you off. <laughs> Essentially, Daredevil ends up running across the Matador, his new uh, enemy in this issue. And the Matador is robbing an armored car by using his red Matador's cape to confuse the drivers or something. And uh, then he's able to use it to fool Daredevil as well. He's very much a one trick pony that that yes. one trick just keeps working over and over again. Like, oh, I'll confuse you with my cape again. It's like, no, you just did that. And also I'm using radar sense, like flashing a red cape in front of me should not have any effect on me whatsoever. Right. Well, that, that's it's not quite a one trick pony. He also uses his sword to touch things that are far away from him. <laughs> but the first but the first half of this issue, the first like three times we see him, he has no sword. You'll note that on this page on this page three, he has no sword anywhere on him. And it is only when Wally Wood gets halfway through the issue that he's like, oh, God, this guy is so lame. What have I done? And then he's like a sword. Matadors have swords sometimes. I could give him a sword, which makes so much more sense. But we get through several fight scenes without any sign of a sword. Uh, actually, these next couple of pages, if they had put them in different orders, would totally explain that splash page. Because when uh, the window washer falls and Daredevil grabs that rope to haul him up and he meets the window washer halfway and saves him, that rope looks exactly like the rope he's swinging from the splash page. True. Anyway, we find that there is some sort of a costume ball that the uh, employees of Murdoch and Nelson are supposed to go to, and Karen comes out dressed as, of course, Cleopatra. Oh, yes. 
Of course. <laughs> These and comics are just obsessed with Cleopatra. Stanley yeah. is obsessed with Cleopatra. Foggy was supposed to come with her uh, dressed as Caesar, but he has to stay at the office for a little while. So Matt uh, accompanies her just wearing his suit. The Matador figures, hey, this costume ball at this, you know, rich house or whatever it is, I can just blend in as just somebody dressed up as a Matador. Um, and Wally Wood has a great time drawing all of the period outfits that people are wearing. Just really yes. has fun with that. Wally um, is totally flashing back to his EC days with uh, when he got to draw all these ancient historical periods. Matt is uh, aware that the Matador is here and is doing some stealing, but he's not sure what to do about it. Has some sort of lame thing about actually talking about, hmm, it would be weird if the Matador came here and did this. And somehow that then gets him to, uh, gets other people to be like, hey, that is the Matador. Once again, lots of fun with um, all the people in the costumes. Karen pushes Matt into some sort of other side room to protect him because he's a blind man and chaos is breaking out. So, of course, this is exactly what he wanted because he can change immediately into Daredevil and come out and do what he needs to do. Now, as we pointed out, you know, the Matador somehow is able to use his cape to dull the radar senses. This this guy landed a spaceship because <laughs> of his, like, radar sense and stuff like that. Like, how would one cape do it? <laughs> his rustling cape it vibrates the air around him fogging my radar sense yes yeah um so the next day matt is walking through uh new york with karen and sees some kids playing daredevil and matador and the kids all want to be matador because he's so cool and daredevil was so lame this is what his motivation is now i must prove to the kids that crime does not pay so once again, we get one of these things where the lamest villains have the most over-the-top, supercilious dialogue. So he's just talking about like, oh, my supreme genius, and how could anyone ever stop me because I'm so great? And it's just like you jumped over a fence, and you put your cape over some dude, and you used your sword to switch a switch that was far away from you. Like, that's that's what you did. Anybody really could have done that. Um, yes. So anyway, as, but, as he is, he decides just for sheer irony's sake to rob a burglar alarm factory. Yes. Matt is thinking to himself that he really is falling in love with Karen and she should ask her to marry him. I'm like, Mary, it's not like you've even been on like a real date. Like, how do you ask her to marry you? And then it turns out that Foggy has the exact same idea and wants to propose to her once again. Well, I guess they've at least been at, they at least had a date to go out to the costume ball. So then Matt is, of course, like, oh, I can never reveal that I love her because it would hurt my best friend. And, you know, yada, yada, yada. Meanwhile, he goes out to do some research on the Matador. He breaks into the public library and finds the sports sections of the international editions. And he's got this massive, massive book that he's holding and putting down on a table. And they talk about how he has to feel the spines of the books to figure out which, you know, where he's supposed to be going. Anyway, he opens up this thing and confirms that his hunch is right, that the Matador actually is a world famous Matador from Spain, who was uh, very violent and vicious to the bulls. And so the audience started taking the bulls side and he ended up getting gored. And that's the last we've ever really heard of him. Matt's like, oh, yeah, clearly this is our guy. Uh, so, so then Matt calls the press and says, hey, I'm going to tell you who the Matador really is. And he says, he's Daredevil. 
and this is all in a thing to lure the Matador into breaking into Nelson and Murdoch's office so that Daredevil can take care of him. And of course, Daredevil's there, and uh, Matador says, you must be in league with the lawyer Murdoch. Again, only Spider-Man has any real, puts any real effort into the secret identity thing. That's yes. I think he's well, I mean, the only one. Matt's plan is kind of clever and kind of fun to, you know, worm out of the oven by announcing to the press that the Matador is Daredevil. But first of all, Matt, you're getting the words Matt Murdock and Daredevil together next to each other in headlines. And yes. that is something you should be avoiding right there. Now, this will become a sort of running gag in Daredevil that he has become the hero who has had his secret identity revealed to the public the most times. And then somehow they've had to shove the toothpaste back into the tube every time and try to then explain why suddenly the public forgets this or becomes convinced it wasn't the truth or anything like that. So already we've got headlines of, that contain the words Matt Murdock and Daredevil in them. So already you're getting yourself in trouble, Matt. So page 17, drawing fire escapes in comics is, in my opinion, one of the hardest things you can get. <laughs> I remember when doing some inking samples when I was trying to break in, getting a Nightwing page that had a whole bunch of fire escapes in the background and just being like, oh my God, what am I going to do with this stuff? But Wally Wood just does it uh, seemingly effortlessly here during uh, the Matador and Daredevil's fight. Yeah, um, I, I thought I thought you were about to complain. I love this page and I love this fire escape. It's really well done. And oh, yeah. now the Matador is actually relying on his sword instead of his cape. And I feel like page 17 is the one page in this issue where I'm like, okay, this is really working. Like the Matador is kind of working his villain here. He's fighting with the sword and, you know, really beautiful images of the two of them having a fight going all the way up a fire escape. I agree with you. However, page 18 gets a little bit weird. There's a whole five panel sequence that shows uh, Daredevil leaping, grabbing a TV antenna, swinging around, swinging around, and then launching himself at the Matador feet first. And I'm just, I mean, this is one of those places where I'm like, I'm not sure that Wally Wood really had to the hang of this whole superhero comic thing, because that should be one panel. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, any other super, you know, primary, primarily superhero artist would have done that in one, maybe two panels. Uh, yeah. And it, the pacing just seems weird. It doesn't really seem to do anything for the scene. In the end, Daredevil defeats the Matador. The cops come and get him. Karen and Foggy are like, dude, why did you do that thing saying that Daredevil is the, uh, is the Matador when clearly he wasn't? You just sort of made a fool of yourself. What's up with that? He's like, might as well admit it. When I make a mistake, it's usually a butte. There we go. We're at the end of it. And yeah, I... I am going to be quite frustrated with the gap between the potential of having Wally Wood draw this book and the actual outcome of having Wally Wood draw this book. Um, now, another thing I will say about Wally Wood and Marvel in general is he is going to not have any patience for the Marvel method. Now, he, he is very quickly going to say, hey, basically, I'm half writing the book, and yet I'm not getting paid for half writing the book. And not getting credit. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm only being, you know, and it's like, I could do that. I do write comics, you know, <laughs> but you're not paying me for this. I've kind of gotten the feeling 
and this is just completely speculation on my part, that Wally Wood may have gotten into particularly Steve Ditko's ear about this. But like, what yeah. are you doing? Like this, you know, you're you're writing this stuff. Why are you letting Stanley do this? And because, I mean, you know, he's the one who starts coming afterwards and being like, oh, okay, no, I, I insist on getting credit for co-plotting here. Yeah, we're going to see over the course of the next five issues or so, Bollywood shaping more and more under the constraints of the role method and under the, um, you know, under his sense of aggrievement about the way in which he is credited. And we will see that take various forms over the next five issues. So I, I'm not going to spoil where that's going. <laughs> Just Wally Wood eventually does uh, does lead dirty at the very end of his run. Yes. I will say that. Despite uh, your interruptions, I think I did a pretty decent job for uh, for what I was able to do there. Uh, do you have any more thoughts on this issue? I think I like this issue more than you did. I think that it's... It's pretty nice looking art. It reminds me of Russ Manning in places, who is one of my all-time favorite comic book penciler inkers. And I think the matador is tremendously lame. I think that, you know, Wallywood realizes halfway through how lame he is and finally gives him a sword to make him less lame. But I, I don't remember that he ever comes back again. I would certainly love to never see him again. He is <laughs> a tremendously lame villain. As a result, even though we now have a world-class Penciler, inker, and co-potter, it is still not a world-class book. This is still not a great issue. Right. And honestly, the, the villains that come up during his run generally are quite subpar. I don't know how much of that is Lee and how much of that is him just like being like, I'm not going to spend any good ideas on this thing. <laughs> I don't know. I'll save those for other work. The villains are subpar, which is to say on par for Daredevil. <laughs> yes. I am definitely done, and you can move on and do, I believe, Fantastic Four next, yes? Indeed, this is Fantastic Four 33, and we have the introduction of Atuma. It says, see the fabulous FF for the very first time, all fighting on the side of the Submariner. Now, this never actually happens inside the book where he is leading them into battle because there is a central conceit in this issue that he never knows that they are there, that they help him, but they don't want to hurt his pride, so they're helping him without him knowing. But on the cover, they're all going into battle together against Atuma. We see him with his very strange helmet looming in the front of the thing. And we get our first Kirby collage on a cover, a crazy Kirby cover collage. It's got photographs of undersea corals behind the drawing. The Fantastic Four are all looking at a bizarre sea creature, which Reed is doing a sort of alien autopsy of. They are like, this clearly came from the deep sea. Isn't that where Namor is? What's going on? What would be happening down there? Then Johnny flies over the city, sets some flares, and sees, what's that? There's a walking garbage bag coming out of the sea. Well, it turns out inside the walking garbage bag is Dorma, and this is her little thing she's got to uh, keep herself wet as she comes in, and she is coming to look for the Fantastic Four. So Johnny flies her there. Sue's like, I remember you. You were the one who was in love with Namor. She's like, yes, I am. I am in love with Namor. And now because of me, he will die and I need your help. And she goes, tells a long flashback about how Namor was ruling Atlantis as king. He goes back and forth as to whether or not the people of Atlantis actually want him around or not. But this is during a period where they do want him around. But then they just say ancient legends, which tell one day an enemy will come to ravage for Atlantis. Such an enemy is even now at our gates. He calls himself Atuma. So it's unclear if Atuma ever lived in Atlantis or if he's always lived in some like other Atlantean type nation down there. I don't know. 
So it's unclear if this is a civil war or a war war. I saw it as a civil war, but let's call it a civil war, some sort of civil war under the sea. And then Dorma was like saying, hey, Namor, you know, it's a good thing we've got our love to sustain us during this. And he's like, hold your tongue, woman, never speak thus of love to me. And she was so heartbroken by this that she betrayed him to Atuma. And oh, yeah. It's just, you, using my authority as a noble woman of the realm, I ordered the guard away from a vital outpost, allowing Atuma's words to crash through. Yes. And so then she's like, remember, you vowed no harm would come to Namor. And he says, bah, witless female. What do vows mean to the mighty Atuma? Of course, you would think he would remember that when Namor spoke to her like that, she instantly turned on him, and now she's turning on it too much. So now she goes to get the Fantastic Four to come help. Reed sprays them all with an oxo spray that will allow them to breathe underwater and will even allow Johnny to flame on underwater, which I always find a little silly whenever that happens. For some reason, I'm more than willing to buy people humans being able to breathe underwater after being shot with an oxo spray, but I'm not willing to buy someone catching flame underwater. We get another photo collage as they go deep under the sea. And I got to say, a lot of the photo collages Kirby does don't really work. The one on page eight doesn't really work for me. It's too dark. There's none of contrast. Yeah. You know, he's trying. He's doing exciting things, but he's not always giving the most thought to how these things will reproduce. So then yeah. they get down and they help Namor. And then they spend the next 10 pages coming up with various fun ways to help Namor in this fight, but without harming Namor's pride by not ever letting Namor know they're there. And Namor has to be pretty dense to not figure it out, because at one point, Sue shows up and turns Namor invisible, which greatly helps with his fight that his enemy can't see him. And Namor's like, why Why are you acting so strange? Why can't you see me? And it's like, Namor, dude, catch up. Eventually, their oxygen spray runs out. They have to go up, and but they know they've done enough to turn the tide of the battle, and now Namor wins and beats Atuma, and they go back to the surface where Reed turns himself into a raft in a amusing panel. And meanwhile, Namor is happy and content down below. And he says, I know how you betrayed me, Lady Dorma, but I forgive you for I, above all others, am aware of the strange things one may do in the name of love. This is basically another backdoor pilot. This is, and this is the last we will see of the Submariner in the Fantastic Four for the next, how many issues? Maybe, I, I don't know. maybe 65 issues. I feel like he doesn't show up again in Fantastic Four until about issue like 102 or so. This is the end of Namor and the Fantastic Four. And instead they're going like, no, from now on, it's going to be Namor and Dorma. And it's going to be Namor fighting Atuma. And it's going to be Namor running his kingdom. And he is going to be the hero of his own story from now on. Now, you would think that they're setting up a backdoor pilot and then Namor's own book would start the next month. Well, no, Namor's own book starts nine months from now. So Namor will not be seen again, I believe, for the next nine months. And then when he shows up nine months from now, he will have his own book that will be tragically inked by Coletta. It will be penciled by Colin, inked by Coletta, which will turn out to be the worst combo in Marvel history. Uh, Colin is drawing under a pseudonym. So when I first got to that issue and I was reading it, I was reading it and I was like, okay, I can't tell if this Adam Austin guy is utterly talentless or if he's just being completely ruined by Coletta. And then later I found, oh, no, no, that, that's, that's Gene Colan. I'm like, okay, so we have our answer. He's just being utterly ruined by Coletta. It's just so a terrible combo. 
We will talk about that when we get to it. But yes. for some reason, we have our backdoor pilot for setting Namor up with his own series. He does not actually show up for nine months later with his own series. But I think this is a good backdoor pilot. I really leave this going like, okay, Namor is his own man now. And it's ultimately a fun conceit that he never knows the Fantastic Four there, that he gets to keep his pride and that, oh, Namor, isn't that cute? You're so sure that you defeated Tatuma all by yourself. But I think that it is it is great. I, I buy him as his own hero from this point on. Um, yeah, now I I personally never really enjoy his solo series very much. I mean, and it's just I, I think it's just a, you know, my taste sort of thing. Uh, so I'm a little sad to see him and not be, you know, just a, a foil for the Fantastic Four anymore, a, a frenemy, a, uh, you know, an antihero of the Fantastic Four. Uh, I am going to be looking back and wishing for those days when he is uh, starring in his own series. And once again, yeah. that's not to say anything bad about, you know, I'm sure that people love it for any number of reasons, but it's just not my thing. I agree. I I liked him better as a Fantastic Four character than as his own character in his own series. You know, I mean, the number one reason is because Kirby is <laughs> because when right. he's in Fantastic Four, he is being drawn and co-pounded by Jack Kirby, who is you know, really loves Namor and really goes to town. Unfortunately, I don't believe Namor ever draws an issue of Namor's solo series. Eventually, the arc gets better. They have Colin without Coletta. They have John Buscema for a while. They've got various good artists doing it, but they never have Kirby doing it. Kirby is a natural fit with Namor. And unfortunately, this is the end, the end of the Kirby-Namor story. I guess Kirby is still drawing the book when Namor finally shows up again in the Fantastic Four 60 issues or so later. But that is... Too little, too late. On page three, last panel, the thing is mentioning about Dorma. He says, I don't trust that smooth talking tomato. It might be a trap, <laughs> which, you know, the character that comes through in that dialogue is just fun. One of my favorite lines from classic Hollywood is actually from it's the line doesn't match the movie at all. It's from an affair to remember where they're talking about this heiress who's on this cruise ship. They're talking about how much money she has. And they go, that's a lot of lettuce and quite a tomato to go with it. <laughs> uh, but then when Reed has doused them with his oxo spray, I just love that they apparently have an aquarium sitting around in the Fantastic Four headquarters, which I don't know if we've seen that before or not, but uh, Thing just dunks his head into the aquarium to try breathing underwater to prove to himself that it works. In terms of uh, funny visuals, I will also point out that when uh, Reed turns himself into a fake giant manta ray to transport the Fantastic Four and Dorma through the Atlantean armies without being detected. Uh, that is quite a look with his face stretched across, you know, basically six feet. <laughs> a couple more um, uh, terminology things that I found are good. There's at one point, one of the Atlanteans says, quick, one burst of your explode grenade will stop anything that lives. It's like, doesn't a grenade explode? Like, what an explode grenade? Okay, yes. is there <laughs> such a thing as a is there such a thing as a non explode grenade? Right after Reed has stopped the big, uh, you know, whatever it is the steel band attack thing they were doing, uh, one of the Atlanteans says, "Despair not! Our fourth platoon is about to destroy all of Atlantis." With a neutro nuclear dissolvo bomb. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Stanley. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, so anyway, I, I couldn't let I couldn't let those little moments go by without uh, notice. But no, I I really like the art in this issue. I really like they're adding Atuma because now I can use my one of my favorite dad jokes, which I know I tried to tell you when we were in Florida and I totally bombed it. You know, it, it basically ends up with Arnold Schwarzenegger saying it's not Atuma, but exactly, know, uh, yeah. We don't need the whole joke. <laughs> Just the punchline is good enough. But no, this is this is really some fantastic Kirby work, I've got to say. And yeah, I love on page 12 the shot of the piercing battering ram shooting through the gates of Atlantis. Kirby loves war. Kirby loves war. He loves civil war. He loves doing massive factions with massive armies crashing up against each other. And on every page of this issue, Kirby is just in love. He's in love with what he gets to draw. And that is infectious. Yep. Um, and yeah, it's like on, on page um, 14. It's simple, but those two panels on the top where there is a, what is it? Mysterious globules dissolve into blinding pockets of murky fluid. You know, just the depiction of, oh, okay, so here's this weapon that, you know, puts basically this ink in the water and here's a representation of what it does to everyone's senses underwater. That's great. Now, is it your understanding that Atlanteans cannot swim? They only walk on the on the bottom of the ocean? That's never clear. That's never clear at all. They certainly don't really seem to be swimming very much here, do they? No, I mean, they, never, they never seem to be. It just seems to be an underwater human kingdom <laughs> with human technology and human clothing and human modes of walking about <laughs> so. i mean we definitely see submariners swimming at various points in this issue well right but we fly. don't really seem to see anybody else yeah that's true he can fly i um, mean that could be just the equivalent of flying to the atlanteans yeah it's true or i should point out at the end that there is a letter from don mcgregor who would go on to be oh, a great writer on yes great writer on black panther and many other series that he is writing in from west warwick rhode island but uh, yes, almost every issue, there is a future writer or artist who is writing in. Yeah, that's, that's neat. Okay, so we're going to move on to Journey into Mystery with the Mighty Thor. There's a caption on the cover that says, We decided this cover is too beautiful to spoil with captions. So here it is. You figure it out. And of course, it's like, Stan, you just couldn't restrain yourself, could you? <laughs> So before you start your timer, I know you don't like it when I talk for 10 minutes as soon as you start your timer. So before you start your timer, let's go ahead and first have a discussion about this cover. What do you think about this cover? I have seen people online talk about it, this being an especially beautiful Thor cover, and I want to know what you think of it. Uh, I'm not a huge fan. Personally. I'm not a huge fan either. I think there is just a massive gap in the middle of the cover. I think that there is just too much white ceiling in the middle of the cover. That I think it's a beautiful concept for a cover. We see Asgard in the background and the Rainbow Bridge stretching out towards us and Balder running along the Rainbow Bridge. And Balder has to, this actually happens in the issue, he has to throw a sword up off the Rainbow Bridge so that it lands down on Earth where Thor can use it. But I think that one of Thor's feet is being cut off by the bottom of the cover. And I think that it's just... Thor Hyde and Cobra are too smushed down to the bottom of the cover because you need this room for the sword to fall. I think it is an awkwardly laid out cover. Uh, the laying out isn't necessarily what was saying that I'm not the hugest fan. It's more about the way that all of those sort of feather lines or action lines are handled 
in the rainbow bridge part of the cover. At first, I looked at that and thought this was Coletta's first appearance on the cover of Thor. But looking at the bottom of the of the uh, cover, it's clearly not. That's kind of a scratchy mess up there with how those were handled. And not only yeah. has it been a scratchy mess, but it looks like I don't know exactly how the paste up with the title, I mean, with the uh, title of the book worked, but it looks like the stuff is just cut off, you know, goes to black immediately from all of this sort of feathering stuff. Uh, so I, it's really inking issues that I have with it personally. Yeah, I'd agree. Uh, when last we left off in Journey into Mystery, we had a cliffhanger. So Jane was injured in this home somewhere in the New York State Mountains or something like that. This is all a plot set in, in motion by Loki. Uh, she had been injured, and so Thor used his hammer to stop time within a little bubble that includes this building uh, in order to keep her from getting closer to death while he still is able to fight Hyde and Cobra. Now, we have seen his uh, hammer have time-altering powers before, so this is not entirely uh, out of the blue. But right away, time is not moving for Jane. Time has slowed down super slow for Jane as she is dying, and then Cobra and Hyde attack over Jane's body. There, She is prostrated on a couch, and then they leap basically over her to attack Thor. Why is time not slow for them? Shouldn't they be moving in super slow motion now, and Thor is just laughing at them as they run towards him like, oh, Thor, we're attacking you. Yeah, the, the, the whole stopped time in a bubble thing makes zero sense. It, it, it just it just really does not, especially when like later you see someone coming in, you know, some people discovering the anomaly and like throwing a rock in and it, the rock just hovers there when it gets inside the uh, the, the time bubble. So, yeah, no, the, the, the whole thing makes no sense. But I'm just saying that we actually we at least have established before that. Thor's hammer can do things with time. Thor is looking for a safe room to ditch Jane in because uh, this whole house is booby trapped in order to get Thor. Seems like really over elaborate and odd way to try and get Thor, but that's what they've done. So uh, he's looking for a safe room to bring her into. But of course, this whole house has been set up to just be booby trapped for them. So uh, he opens one door and throws his hammer in first, and indeed this huge slab of something comes crashing down and would have killed her. But then after it's come down, he's like, okay, well, I'll just leave her here, and now I can go out and take care of Cobra and Hyde. We then see that Odin is paying attention to what's going on here. On page five, Odin's throne looks like a, it's a recliner that can't unrecline. <laughs> it, does not, it, it looks like you're actually going to have to get your ab workout in order to do anything in that chair. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's sort of it's sort of like a chaise lounge. It's, a, it's sort of it's very it's like a Barco lounge. You're right. He's kicking back and must kick back in this very relaxed throne. Well, I, I, but it doesn't look relaxing to me. <laughs> it looks like it would be too much effort to like raise your head and you'd like be working out your abs. Anyway, Odin is thinking about the whole situation with Thor and Jane and Thor not giving up Jane despite all of his commands. But then he starts thinking back to a love of his young days as well. And uh, this is on page five, looking at the headdress of this woman my thought is, hey, she is his type because look at that headwear. <laughs> yes. 
He's like, look at what's on her head. Um, But I also have to say that uh, each time I first look at this panel, her arms crossed demurely in front of her look at first like they are the tops of her thighs and those are garters coming down to thigh high stocking. <laughs> yes. I think I now I, that now that's how I see it. Yes. But yeah, so so Balder is sitting there with this sort of lyre and or whatever that would be, loot lyre or something. And he is saying, oh yes, Thor is in love with Jane Foster, but weren't, didn't you ever have a star-crossed love? Didn't you ever have somebody you loved who you couldn't be with? And he's like, oh, yes, I do remember. He doesn't give her a name, unfortunately, but it's like, right. yes, I remember I did use to love her. But this kind of brings home this odd fact of the Kirby Lee Thor is that no one has any wives. Like, there is no Frigga. It didn't, I did not realize. So, so by, finally, by the way, we've just reached the end of my five minutes here. <laughs> I did not realize... I did not realize until I finally reread like basically all of Thor leading up to Thor Love and Thunder that Frigga, Odin's wife, does not show up until the late 70s when Roy Thomas starts writing the book. And he's like, "Okay, this is ridiculous that we've had this big sausage fest of Asgard except for Sif. And let's go ahead and just reveal that all their wives have been on some sort of mission. And he not only he brings back Odin's wife, Fricka, and he brings back Loki's wife, Sigurd, I think her name was or something. And it's funny, then by the time Simonson is on the book, uh, having the most legendary Thor run, he very much keeps Fricka around. He's like, yep, Odin's wife, Fricka, and keeps her on the book to the extent that I had not. I didn't even notice that she wasn't around back in the old Lee Kirby days. It took me a while to realize, oh, no, no, she was never around. But Simonson has wants nothing to do with Loki's wife. He completely ignores the existence of Loki's wife and never mentions her again. Odin's wife, Frigga, will eventually show up, will eventually become a major character in this book, pretty much ongoing from the late 70s on, but um, not mentioned at all until then. So Thor is, you know, just going through this house now that he's ditched Jane in what he thinks is a safe place. And he's trying to fight Cobra and Hyde, who, of course, have multiple levels of their powers uh, because of something that Loki did. Uh, but they end up fighting each other, of course, over which one is going to get the um, the honor of being the one to get Thor. Um, we do see Cobra darts this time. I don't know whether those have been enhanced by Loki as well. <laughs> yes, twice as dartful as they were before. Thor blows the darts back at him and they have like poison gas in them and he has to go slither into the air ducts in order to get away from his own poison gas. Meanwhile, the poison gas is starting to affect Hyde, but Thor can just pull his cape up and apparently that's enough to keep him from getting the poison gas. I don't know. Meanwhile, back in Asgard, Odin has decided, you know what? I do understand where Thor is coming from. So I'm not willing to give him permission to be with this woman yet, but I will make sure she does not die. So Loki Take this order, this this uh, decree of mine and make sure it gets to this mystic healer who, uh, you know, lives past all of these mythic challenges. And so he's like, uh, yeah, sure, I'm going to do that. <laughs> he's not going to do that. But then Balder and some other folks come by and say, hey, Loki, we know you. We know you're not going to do that. <laughs> so we're going to take that from you and do it ourselves. So 
Balder then heads off. Yeah, you get the feeling that like Odin, Odin's like, hmm, I'll have Loki do it. Okay, Loki, here's the job. Goodbye. And Odin walks away and then the others are all just rolling their eyes out of their head until Odin finally walks out of the room. They're like, okay, Loki, enough of that. Give us the order. We're taking it. You're not going to take it. We, for some reason, your father does not understand you, but we do. And we are not going to let you screw this up. Yes. Um, so meanwhile, we uh, get... Um, intermittent shots of Balder in Asgard going through the swamps of endless flame. And uh, we'll see some more in a moment. I just want to point out, though, that uh, in the simultaneous fight that Thor is having with Hyde, at one point Hyde is able to keep Thor's hammer from returning to him by just, like, pinning his arms or something like that. It's like, really, that's all it takes to keep his hammer from uh, getting back to him? Thor rips open a wall in this booby-trapped house and finds a lot of the electronics that are used to make the booby traps. And he's like, hey, I learned some things about this earthly uh, electrical stuff from Iron Man, so I can go do this. And he says at one point, how amused the immortals of Asgard would be to see the Thunder God changing wiring like an earthbound electrician. Yeah, how amused humans would be, too. <laughs> but yes, apparently, apparently Iron Man runs night classes in circuitry to teach the rest of the Avengers, and yes. Thor has been taking them just in case he needed them. So Cobra has been going through the uh, interior workings of this booby-trapped house ever since he escaped the poison gas, and whatever Thor just did sent, like, shocks through uh, the metal in the house and forced Cobra out, and then Thor goes ahead and ties him up. He then is thinking, I can't keep time stopped forever. It will cause some sort of time-space rift or something like that. And so I'm, I, I might just have to let Jane die. Uh, meanwhile, we see Balder is still continuing past all of these things. There are these, like, poisonous mushroom gas things, and there's the, what, the Valley of Swords and all sorts of stuff. But he finally makes it to the healer. Hardo the healer is probably like, man, I've been running this healing business for all these years. I had so few customers. I don't understand why I just can't make a living at this. It's like, dude, it is really hard to get to your place of business. I don't think I don't think you quite realize just what bad real estate, what bad frontage you have. I think you just have you just have terrible frontage, dude. Location, location, location. <laughs> Thor finally decides, that's it, I can't do this, I'm going to do too much damage to the rest of the world and the universe if I don't, re if I don't release this whole time bubble thing. So he sa basically says goodbye to Jane and then starts to let time go back to where it, it should go, And but then this sword just falls into the floor from out of the sky. Uh, he recognizes it as the Sword of Balder, and it's got the medicine tied to the handle with a little note saying that this is to heal Jane. So he then has to run back to Jane. I'm not exactly sure why he was far away from her at all. It seems that <laughs> he had just done this thing. But one way or the other, he runs back to her, gives her the medicine, and she revives. And then the sword, meanwhile, jumps back up and goes to the Rainbow Bridge. Thor is very, very grateful to his father. And that is the end of that story. Any story that has a lot of Hyde and Cobra in it, I'm not going to be too patient with. But Baldur's epic journey and uh, Loki's machina machinations, machinations, machinations. I don't know. Machin I, I'd say K-Sound there. 
Okay. And, and, you know, Odin's throne and his memories of his hubba hubba headwear girlfriend back in the back in the day uh, are, you know, are enough to at least partially make up for Cobra and Hyde and a booby trapped mansion. You can picture him just going up to her going like, so do you like maybe headwear? Do you want to (laughs) maybe get something to drink to talk about? headwear as we have something to drink young lady <laughs> i i agree that the stuff in asgard as a, as always is more interesting than the stuff on earth and the odin story the balder story the loki story is wonderful and the big fight on earth between hyde and cobra and thor is merely just okay but it's it's fun i think that kirby is having fun with it and as long as it's not the main driver of the story i don't mind it at all i i, I will say that on one point on page 14 Balder, in order to get across the Valley of Swords, has to tie large flat stones onto the hooves of his horse. And Kirby will like to set big challenges for him or possibly Lee setting big challenges for him of what to draw. And I feel like this is a challenge too far, making it (laughs) believable that this horse can walk across pointed Valley of Swords uh, by strapping big things to its feet. But I appreciate that Kirby is willing to tackle any challenge. So on to uh, Tales of Asgard. So this is The Secret of Sigurd. And I want to I want to point out that in the credits, it is superbly written by Stan Lee, supremely drawn by Jack Kirby, savagely inked by Vince Coletta and sagaciously lettered by Artie Symex. So Artie is actually being treated with uh, with the same reverence as Lee and Kirby in this case. Coletta, I mean, I don't know whether that's supposed to be like it just savage sort of seems like, oh, okay, yeah, they're they're calling it. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, right above where it says savagely inked by Vince Glada, you see the faces of Loki, Thor, and Balder. They could not be a bigger load of crap laid on this page by Vince well, Glada. Loki's is okay, but yes, Thor and Balder are both crap. We know how much better Kirby drew this. We know we can picture how good the pencilers were. And we because we've just seen the first half of the book inked by Chick Stone, who is doing a wonderful job in Kirby. And suddenly, if you believe the back half of the book, Kirby can't draw. If you believe the back half of the book, it's like, oh, Kirby, you did a very poor job drawing that. We know he didn't draw it poorly. We know Claude is just inking it poorly. He's inking it. He's just scratching this stuff in. He just seems to have he seems to have one of those little metal nib pens that dried out five years ago. What's it called? A crow quill. He's got a crow quill and it dried out five years ago and he still just just he no longer has any ink in it. So he just has to scratch lines in the paper. He just has to gouge little lines in the paper. And that's all he can do with it at this point. One thing that I notice about this is most of the Tales of Asgard will talk about how this was back in the past in Thor's youth or something like that or in Odin's youth. Uh, But in this case, they don't really give us any indication of when this happened. It could be current day for all we know loki balder and thor are returning from somewhere and loki's like hey here's a shortcut we should take through this forbidden forest of (laughs) and it's like oh okay sure let's do what you say uh but anyway they get there and they come across sigurd who wants to challenge them to a battle sigurd says i've got a secret power and balder's like oh that's right that's kind of famous what is it what is it And then meanwhile, Thor is fighting Sigurd and Sigurd just seems to be getting more and more powerful with each time he's thrown to the ground. 
And finally, Balder remembers that just like uh, who, who was the villain that Hercules fought where he had to get him up off the ground in order to. Uh, oh, I don't remember. Uh, yeah, anyway, but very much like Hercules in the Greek myths, uh, he figures out that this guy gets his power through the earth. And then the way he finally defeats him at the end, I really do not understand what exactly happened. Thor shoves his hammer up into the front of Sigurd's belt in a panel that just looks like, what are you two doing? <laughs> but then somehow Thor then swings his hammer and rips the belt off and he goes flying out like literally to an asteroid that uh, Thor aimed him at a particular asteroid, which I, I don't really get quite that ending. But I, I like seeing Loki having machinations that are foiled by the good Asgardians. Although, you know, the whole thing about, hmm, I can't remember what his secret is. What is it? Was I found a little bit annoying. <laughs> it's yeah. like, this it's is, clearly getting stronger the longer you fight him. So that's at least part of it. This is just a dead simple story. This is maybe yes. the most simple, simplistic Tales of Asgard yet. Thor beats somebody who is getting stronger until he figures out he should fling him up in the air. And that is it. And Loki, of course, has tried to trap him into this. And Baldur tries to help him get out of it. And it is just a dead simple story. But it's fine. If it had been decently inked, it might have been a perfectly serviceable story. Oh, my God. All right, I will stop complaining about Quetta, but I just have to put out one more thing. The bottom <laughs> right panel of page four, as I've said before, the number one job of an anchor is to make it look like two eyes are both in the same head. And look at Baldur's two eyes in the bottom right panel of page four. Look at those two eyes. Are those two eyes in the same head? I ask you. Let me zoom in here on this and take a look. Oh, yeah. No, both of them. Yeah, both of them are terrible. <laughs> yes yeah both yes. of them both of them look like the toxic avenger or something like that <laughs> yeah you're right <laughs> Just, this may be Claude's worst inking job yet which is saying a lot but the good news is Claude is soon about to take over the front of the book i went ahead and i looked ahead to see you know because every issue i just tremble in fear when i open it to see if Claude will be inking the first half of the book yet no we've got like six more months of chick zone on the first half of the book which is the good right. news good all right, so um, we went over on that one, uh, but you know, I I blame you, Jacques, uh, as your as your son uh, used to beat me in uh, the game Anomia over uh, over Thanksgiving. <laughs> I, I'm not going to take all the blame for going over on that one. I think on both the front and back half of the book, I'm not going to take all the blame on that. I'm giving all the blame, whether you take it or not. Okay, you you can give me the blame. I just won't take it. Let's go ahead and wrap up this episode. Hopefully this episode will either be shorter than our normal episodes or at least easier to edit down to an hour because <laughs> we have been talking less. We may even get to bed tonight at a reasonable hour. Okay, everybody. Thanks for listening. We will keep recording tonight. But that was the first half of December 1964. Good night. All right. Thank you, everybody. Stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to Marble Reread Club please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to marvelrereadclub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.